Hey there! Welcome to the What Connects podcast, where we explore human connection with people from the province. Today we're chatting with Vaughn Wyan to learn how his automotive empire is authentically rooted in his family values and community investment. Let's get to it! All right, everyone, we're back with another episode of the What Connects is podcast, and today we're hearing from one of Saskatchewan's most successful and beloved entrepreneurs. We're talking with the man behind the many thick frame glasses, Vaughn Wyant, to hear his incredibly fascinating story about how he went from almost being written off as an underachieving middle child to fibbing his way into a job as a car salesman and eventually building a Western Canadian automotive empire. Vaughn's going to share his recipe to a secret sauce of leading with humility, the benefits and challenges of the Wyant Group now being a family-owned and operated business, and the importance of investing time and money into building the community. If you know Vaughn, you know he fills the room with personality, wit, and a genuine care for people. He truly takes the best qualities of a traditional salesman, funnels them through his prairie values, and just morphs it into an authentic, people first style that sets a brand new standard for customer service. He's also so passionate for his community and the people of the province. So we'll chat about what it was like for him to present someone with a $1 million donation and his newest philanthropic passion, the Pegasus project. Vaughn's joining us remotely from Saskatoon. So let's give him a call and get this interview started. What connects us to Vaughn? Let's find out. Vaughn Wyant, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Mason, how are you doing today? Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Thank you for joining us. Before we get started, I want to ask you a question, and that's how is the 75 hard lifestyle challenge going? Oh, well, I was, it's it's interesting because, you know, I don't know whether you've heard or not, there's a, a pandemic going on I heard about. And uh, yeah, oh, is there? it's crazy. I know it's it's apparently anyway. So it's the only thing that we hear about every day. So uh, Lori and I decided that we were going to, uh, you know, make some 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 use out of the pandemic. We're going to do some good for ourselves as long uh, as well as other people. So we uh, we embarked on seventy five hard, which is a there's an app for it. We started on January first, and for seventy five days we we didn't have a single thing to drink. We drank four liters of water every day. We 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 read nonfiction every day. We stuck to a diet, and we exercise 90 minutes a day and at least 45 every day had to be outside. And I got to tell you, I, I've never been overweight, but but the picture from day one to the picture of day 75 is like a different human being. Wow. I, like I weigh what I did in grade 12. Oh, good for you. I'm on the opposite end. Like I am, I think I've gained 75 pounds from, from when we first went into lockdown. So good for you for, for making a change throughout some, some pretty crazy times. Well, you know what happens? You go home in the pandemic, you go home, you open a bottle of wine, you cook dinner, you watch Netflix. And that's, <laughs> that's an everyday deal. And then all of a sudden you go, I've been doing this for eight months. This can't be good for me. And that's, that's when I just said, we got to, we got to, make better time of the pandemic than just doing that every day. I was doing like an L shape between like the couch, my kitchen and my kitchen table for the first two months. And that was the most exercise that I was getting at the time. Exactly. So let's jump in really quickly with a quick introduction. I'm excited to hear how you would define yourself. So tell me who is Vaughn Wyant? Give me some background on who you are so we can better understand your story. Well, I mean, I, I grew up in a great family uh, with four brothers, uh, uh, you know, when people and you may ask me this question, but people say, so what do you attribute your success to? And I always I always have a single word answer on, you know, mother, my mother. I mean, she taught me the fundamental principles that are important. And that's, uh, you know, never overstaying your welcome, always saying please and thank you, um, uh, being respectful, being honest, uh, creating a level of trust 
Um, and, um, and she was English, right? So we, we grew up understanding our manners, understanding our place. And, uh, we grew up in a loving home. So, uh, it's really fundamental to how I think about, about what I do each and every day. And I know it sounds kind of funny, but if I get into a sticky situation, you know, I always revert back to, you know, what would my mom say? What would, what would she expect me? How would she expect me to act in this particular case? And if I can pass that test, I absolutely know I'm doing the right thing, which isn't necessarily mean that that's the low cost option for me. I, I, I meet people very easily. And I think that wow. people say that you, that I'm a good sales guy. Well, you know, I've never liked the word sales salesman because it almost sounds like I'm trying to sell you something that you don't necessarily want or need. And I would say that I am a relationship builder. Uh, so you know, when I meet somebody, I, I want a, a couple of things to happen. First of all, I want to, I want them meeting me to make their day better. And I can do that by being complimentary, by, uh, by being uh, upbeat, by being funny, by being respectful. You know, I want people to say when they meet me, man, that, that was a cool guy. I'd, you know, I'd like to hang around with that guy as opposed to, uh, you know, the opposite. So I, I build relationships and uh, I build them very naturally and I build them honestly. WWMD, what would mom do or what would mom yeah. say? Yeah, I, I like that too. Uh, I read that in high school, you took one of those tests that uh, career counselors give everyone to, to help guide you on your career path you should take after university. And your peers were getting things like doctor and lawyer and professional athlete. And you got a long distance truck driver. How did that impact your trajectory? I mean, I was, I was a really average student. I probably today I would be um, diagnosed with uh, OCD uh, you know, attention deficit disorder or whatever, but it wasn't because I wasn't smart. It was because there was a big life outside the windows of that classroom and I could see it from the classroom. And I just, you know, I was just a goer. I just always had stuff to do and things to do. And, uh, so I didn't, I, I probably didn't concentrate very good on my school. So I was a very, very good C student. I remember once I got a B minus and my parents were so excited. I got a B minus and that never uh -huh. happened. Like it was like, it, it was, I think it was a fluke. I really think that the teacher felt sorry for me, but yeah, in grade 10, I'm going to say it was grade 10 at Evan Hardy Collegiate, they uh, they started doing what's called a predictive index. And the predictive index was just a, a way of, you know, uh, you know, matching your graph with with successful people in different industries to see where your personality fell out. And I took it and my friends were doctors and lawyers and accountants and all kinds of different things. But anyway, I came out as a long distance truck driver. And I was super disappointed. And I think my motivation when I saw that, I mean, I like driving, don't get me wrong. I even like driving long distance. But I think my motivation uh, was very subliminal and very subconscious and just said, you know what? I, that's not what I'm going to do. So why England? Like, I know you love the Beatles. I hear you, you love the Beatles. I so what, what took you to England? Well, my mother. My mother was English. I had all my cousins, my aunts, my uncles on my, on my mother's side. My dad was, was German. They met in the war. And so I knew all my cousins from a young age. My mother made sure we were connected as a family. So I could go over there and be with family. I didn't stay with family, but I had family. That made my mom very comfortable. And that's when I got in the car business. I loved cars. And so my friends had had cars. I never really did have a car. So I, I was fortunate enough to fall into a job interview out of an employment agency and I started selling cars in for a Ford dealer in North London. Love this part of your story. So tell me how you got the job at a, as a car salesman, because I hear it took a, a slight exaggeration of your work experience. So I believe that present thoughts determine your future. I'm, I'm, I'm really, 
uh, I'm really big on the concept that self-esteem drives human behavior. Well, I, I have high self-esteem. I always say when I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror, I say, if I met that guy, would I like him? I, I go, I really like that guy. I'd like to hang around with that guy. And that's how you have to think about yourself. It's not being egotistical. It's being, it's setting yourself up for success more than anything else. But anyway, I, I got a job interview through an employment agency and I got this job interview and I, and I rolled in, uh, you know, with my, with my pinstripe blue suit. And I took my job interview and my sales manager was about six foot five. His name was Tony Milner, uh, uh, you know, a thin guy. And I went in and he interviewed me. And one of his questions was, have you ever sold cars? Subconsciously, I thought if I said no, I don't get the job. So I said, yes, I have. And he said, great. Where did you sell cars for? And my dad used to lease his cars from from Jubilee Ford in Saskatoon. So I said, I, I sold cars part-time in a place called Saskatoon, Saskatchewan for a company called Jubilee Ford. And I sold part-time while I was going to university. That's my answer. So he, anyway, he hired me. About six weeks later, I recall, he called me into his office. And by this time, I was their number one selling salesperson. It was the easiest thing I'd ever done in, in my life. People walked into the showroom. They wanted to buy something from me. And I guess my personality was engaging. I was a young colonial with a Canadian accent in a sea of British accents. And, you know, I was successful. And uh, so he called me into his office and he said, I just, we just received a reference back from the people you work for. And uh, they say they've never heard of you. <laughs> and I, and without batting an eyelid, I remember it, you know, cause I'm sure my heart stopped. I said, can I see who signed that letter? And he handed me the letter and I looked at it and I going, I don't know who that is. I didn't work for that person. Yeah. And I handed it back to him and he had a dilemma. He had his number one selling person, the guy that brought a lot of personality and spirit to the showroom floor and to the dealership. And at the end of the month, I sold a lot of cars and I guess did pretty well comparison to the average person that was working over there. It added up and it was a lot of work. It was super fun. And so yeah. I got to keep the job. Yeah. At that point, it's almost like a moot point because you're, you've already proved yourself. You're not even the work experience is whatever, like you're showing them that, that you're more than capable. So remember, my dad loved this. I remember he came to visit me, surprised me one day, walked into the showroom. He was so proud that his son had an office, mm. cubicle more than anything. And, you know, remember I started this segment by saying present thoughts just determine your future. You don't get what you want. You get what you think about. Your mind is that powerful. And I thought it, you know, he thought it was great too. And it's, it's you know, that Years later, I ended up buying the company that I said I worked for when I got my first job. Oh, crazy. It, it's freaky, but you know, that's that's a way of um, you know, forecasting of goal setting. You're goal setting in the subconscious of your mind, and your subconscious is taking you to that place. And it's and you're finding all the different obstacles, walking around them. And I look back on that and I'm going, you know. We're always goal setting every day. We're goal setting for what we're going to do tomorrow, when we're going to work out, when we're going to have breakfast, when we're going to get home, who we're going to phone. You know, every day is a bunch, a lot of different goals that we're setting in our own mind that we're achieving. And uh, that was just a, a long range goal that I, I just think it's I think it's a cool story. Uh, like you nailed it. You're. I don't want to use the word lied, but you you fibbed to saying that you worked there before and you eventually worked your way back there and you owned it. So, so some people would say, oh yeah, typical car salesman, he's lying all the time. And I always, and you know, and I kind of, I kind of take a look at that. I'm going, yeah, but you know what? I, I think, I think that we're storytellers, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, part about being a good salesperson is being a good storyteller. And, you know, I'm going to say, I told a story. I'm also going to say it didn't hurt anybody. Right. 
didn't hurt anybody. Um, and I, and it, and it was a matter of self-preservation at the moment. I, right. it was part of, it was part of my master plan that, that I didn't know about. It was part of that predictive index in grade 10 that said, I am not going to be a long distance truck driver in some weird way. It was, it was part of it. We'll get back to Jubilee in a hot second here, but your story comes back to Saskatoon via Vancouver and a small town in Alberta. Yeah. What led you back to Sask or Saskatchewan after, and what kind of what kind of lessons did you learn from Vancouver and that small town in Alberta? Yeah, so I, you know, you remember I said to you that you know, being a being an automobile salesperson in in England was a, was a quite a prestigious job. It was quite prestigious. I remember some of the guys I worked with, you know, suit and tie. They were they were they were hot stuff, right? And so I just assumed back in North America it was just as prestigious, but apparently not at the time, especially in the seventies. And uh, I applied to uh, all the four dealerships in in uh, Toronto and in Vancouver because I thought when I come back, uh, I'm not going to live in Saskatoon. I, you know, I've been living in London, England. So uh, I got back. I went to my brother's wedding. That's the reason I came back. He wanted me to be an usher, so me and my girlfriend came back and and I um, I went to the wedding and then I decided to uh, to fly out to Vancouver and. Uh, and do a bunch of the interviews. A lot of the people had responded to me that, you know, yeah, when you're in Vancouver, come, we'll, you know, we'll have a chat, right? Experienced Ford salesman from England, Canadian. So I went out there and I went, I did all my interviews and got offered jobs everywhere. And, and then I went, I was driving by a place called Zephyr, Zephyr Lincoln Mercury at, at, at uh, 130 West Broadway. And I was writing them a letter. I remember I never got a reply, but I thought, you know, I, I, you know, I went in there and, and I said, I, I introduced myself to the sales manager who became a great friend of mine. And, and so he said, he, you know, he pretended that, you know, he had never received my letter. So we sat down and he interviewed me. Anyway, I'm sitting there and uh, he's just told me that no one's ever, you know, they didn't get my letter. And the owner of the business coming, or should, should say the owner's son, you know, who to this day is still someone that I know quite well. And uh, so Dave, the sales manager, introduced me to say, hey, Ian, this is Vaughn. He's a young guy, Canadian. From and he says, oh, this is the guy that sent us the letter. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So <laughs> so anyway, they hired me. Not long after I, I started there, I, you know, I started thinking about, you know, I want to be a sales manager here. That was that became my goal is to be a sales manager. And I wasn't there for very long. I was there for a year more and, and was the top guy. And uh they made me a crew chief, which meant I looked, looked after five other salespeople plus sold myself. And then there, there's an opening came up for sales manager. They made me the sales manager. I was successful there. And and uh, but what I learned there, to be truthful about it, and this is no knock on my employer at the time, they're very old school. I learned how not to run a business. I learned how to uh, all the all the things I wouldn't do with employees, you know. A lot of the things that they did, like I, I, I don't treat my employees as commodities. I don't treat them as expendable. I think every single one of them is important to our organization. And as much as you know, they need me. I need them. You know, this is a partnership. You know, and so you know the the overriding mantra of our of our business is trust and respect. It's about trusting and respecting each other, and. Uh, wanting them to be truly proud of my success because my success is their success. And so we share it. And, uh, you know, we don't have a class system. Um, 
you know, everybody in my organization are equal. We're equal. Do we get paid different amounts of money? Absolutely. But that's only because we take on different levels of responsibility. It doesn't make us better people. You know, I bolt my own license plate on. I'll wash my own motorcycle. I'll do stuff because it's not about it's not about them and us. It's about us. And so that's what I learned in Vancouver. And that really set the stage. And, and, it, and it really reminded me of my mother. Again, it was like, this is not the way I would run a business. Not to say they were bad. They were successful. But people aren't commodities. I love how your mom is almost like your moral compass throughout your journey about making it back to Sus- or Saskatchewan and and almost like your guiding light, your North Star about morals and things like that when it comes to business. Is that something that, that still remains today? Well, it's why I'm back in Saskatoon, to be truthful about it. After I moved to Alberta and I ran a small dealership and my mom was sick and she, uh, you know, she, she had cancer and uh, she wasn't doing awesome. And I had an opportunity to buy a a Ford dealership, a Lincoln Mercury dealership in Calgary called Southridge Mercury. I was well regarded by Ford, little small town in Carstairs. I'd done very, very well. Bit of a bit of a bit of a disturber. I won't use the other word, but a bit of a disturber. And at the last minute, I thought to myself, because Ford really wanted me to do this deal in Calgary. Uh, I had heard that the the one of the dealers in Saskatoon uh, that Ford might have not been super happy with them uh, from a performance standpoint. Um, and that, you know, that, that, that might be for sale. So I came to Saskatoon cause my mom was sick and I worked hard at buying Jubilee Ford, uh, was a difficult deal and it went sideways at least once. And, uh, but I was determined, right. And we, we put the deal together and the previous owner Lloyd Lloyd Upsall turned out to be a great friend of mine. Of course, he was a little bitter for a while because, you know, he had told his wife, uh, Betty that he went home one day and said, I sold the business. And she was horrified because I think he was only 55 years old. And and he goes, ah, don't worry. It's some young guy. He'll never get the financing anyway. That <laughs> It's a true story. Betty told me. And so I paid him rent for a long time. We became great friends. And I was honored at the end of the day when his family asked me to deliver his eulogy when he passed away. Mm. So it said a lot about, about how, how that relationship was just as important to me. Um, right. And it turned out to be important to Lloyd as well. Because it allowed him to retire, and he lived a really great life for obviously not as long as I think he had hoped or his family had hoped. But delivering his eulogy was a watershed moment for me. Yeah. So, what was that like to finally make that deal and acquire Jubilee Ford? That this is your this is your moment back in Saskatoon. What was that like for you? I was scared to death, but I I was busy. I was so busy. I mean, I had run a small dealership. But when I came to Saskatoon and we took over the dealership, back in Carstairs, I might have had, and you probably don't remember this because you're young, but we would have had like one Crown Victoria in stock. It was That was the car people drove. The, all our farming friends, the rural people, they love Crown Victorias. They love Grand Marquis. And I, I'd have one in stock in, in Carstairs, and then I'd dealer transfer whatever I needed. I got here, there was 40 on the lot. I went... Like, this is crazy how many cars there are. I just couldn't even relate to it. But we had a crew of salespeople. And, uh, but I didn't have a lot of um, time to be really nervous or scared. But I do remember my mom going up to Lloyd, the previous owner. And in her English accent, she said to him, is he going to be okay? Aww. Like, she just, she was so worried about this. This is a massive business for a young guy. And Lloyd said, yeah, he's going to be fine. And and I was. You're not just okay. A lot goes into opening, establishing, and maintaining a new or acquired business, obviously. Yeah. But 
you got to the point where you're ready to to start doing more and and, and acquiring more. So what what makes the decision to begin building like the wine group and what type of thought goes into just continued expansion to ensure that you are growing sustainably? You know, there was a saying back, back in the day, they called them mega dealers, right? And, you know, back in the day, if you, if you're a Ford dealer, first of all, they, they probably wouldn't give you, give you a second Ford dealership. You know, that was your life was being that Ford dealer unless you sold and moved on. But if you ever tried to get a competitive franchise, it was like you were cheating on them. Just they were deeply offended if you went out and got a Honda or a Toyota dealership. And I was young and I wanted to, you know, rule the world like we all do when when we're younger. And, And I remember, you know, we were successful, probably didn't really have a bunch of flexibility financially, probably not as successful as maybe I thought we might be. And uh, but I'm not an accountant. That's why my son Phillips, our CFO, he's an accountant. So he he, he keeps me under control. But you know, um, you know, I wanted to open a second dealership, and I remember going to my banker. His name was Merv McKee, and is a great great banker with the Royal Bank at the time. And and I told him I wanted to do this, and he he looked at me and he said, "What is it with guys like you that aren't satisfied with what you've got?" And I said, "I have no idea. It I don't know, but." I just feel like I can do more. And I think part of it goes back to when I was selling cars um, in in England or in, in Vancouver. And I, you know, I'd have a great month. And we have a saying that you're only as good as your last month, because you know, we were always spending way more than we were making. And uh, so you'd get through a month where you were you had a great month, your number one salesperson. And what creeps into your head on day one of the next month is, was I lucky? Was that just luck or did like, how much of that was luck? So self-doubt always creeps in and, and then, and then your subconscious goes, proves to yourself that it wasn't just luck and you'll work even harder to make it work. And so that's what motivates guys like me to go buy more because you want to prove that it's not just luck, that maybe you're not bad at this business. And remember, I was an average student, so nobody ever told me how smart I was. Like no one ever said like great report card. I never heard that word at home ever. My parents never said great report card because frankly, there was never a great report card. I love how manifestation is such a big part of your journey because it's like your gut tells you I can do more things, but then you have the work ethic to be able to go out and do it. And I think that's what a lot of people, they wish so much, but they're not willing to put their head down and do the grunt work in order to make it happen. Yeah. You know what? I, I've mentored a lot of young people in business. I have. And I think it's our responsibility as successful business people to to help people get better. I just do. I just and I've done it a lot and it's always been enjoyable. Um, I never thought at the beginning that I should be doing it because, again, that's the self-doubt. Like, But but I've seen young people that are super smart that have everything but the work ethic. They got the great ideas. They it's it's unbelievable. But then you know what? They become executives really early and they quit pumping gas. And saying please and thank you for every customer that buys the smallest thing from them. And they hire people to do what they said they were going to do themselves. They become executives. And they haven't earned the right to be an executive yet because they haven't actually made it. I I, I just see it all the time. It's like it's a it's like you you got to get two or three runs up that ladder without stepping on them. And you have to step on every run. And then when you, you know, when you get to the point where you really have confidence and, and you're able to short circuit some of those corners, 
fair fair enough. You've got the experience to be able to do that, but you don't have experience in business or in anything in life until you've 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 made a few mistakes. And it's like it's like learning to ride a bicycle. I use the analogy all the time. How do you learn to ride a bicycle? You gotta fall off. If you don't fall off, you don't know what it's like. And and falling off makes you get on the bike and say to yourself, I'm never gonna fall off again. Totally. I loved what you just said. I am taking from that step on every ring, even the broken ones. Cause if you fall back a little bit, you're not going to make that same mistake again. For sure. So I love that you said your mom asked in a British accent, is my son going to be okay? Yeah. Fast forward 38 years. You're, you're doing pretty good. The wine group represents multiple brands in Saskatoon, Prince Albert, Meadow Lake, Calgary, Kelowna, and Vernon and employs nearly 500 people. Yeah. What's the secret sauce that has translated to so much success? I know we've gone through some, but if you had to encapsulate that, like if you had to put on the on the wine secret sauce, on the ingredients on the back, what would you include on that? Well, I mean, the obvious one is, is people. You have to learn how to empower people. And remember, I'm a type A personality. And uh, for, a, for a long, long time, I didn't... Um, I didn't give up responsibility to anybody. I didn't delegate anything. It was like, who's the best person for the job? Me. And it took me a long, long time uh, to accept that there are people that that can do some of the things that I think I'm pretty good at, as good or actually, to be honest with you, better now. Technology changes a lot of different things. And so, you know, being able to delegate and then going and walking away and going, okay, but now, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still involved in selling cars, but I get calls every day from people that I know that I've sold cars to or been, real, you know, been involved with for many, many years. They call me up. Do I physically go sell them a car? No. But a lot of times I'll deliver the car to them. And it's the best. It's the best part of the business is actually putting a car in someone's driveway, flying out to Vancouver, delivering a car to a customer that's bought five or 10 cars from you. And they're only dealing with me because they're dealing with me because they could buy the car in Vancouver. I deliver a lot of cars in Vancouver and Calgary, all over the place to people that have been doing business with me for literally 30 or 40 years. It always comes down to this. They know that if they have a problem, they can call me and they trust that I will drop what I'm doing and I will. If somebody sends me an email or sends me a text, it's important to them, it's important to me. It could be money in the bank. Even if it's a problem, it's money in the bank. It might be more money in the bank if it's a problem and I can fix it. If I ignore it for a day, it festers. And so I'm a little over the top, but I I keep up with email and I keep up with text and I will respond immediately unless I'm on a plane or sleeping because I think it's important. It is important and showing them that whatever it is, whether it's a big or a small issue, that it means something to you and that they mean something to you. So yeah, it's definitely important. So I like how you said too that you you realize that um, you can't do it all, and and there's people who can dele- you can delegate to. In your case, it's it's your sons. You you hear the saying a lot. It's it's not personal, just business. But you're a family run business with your son Philip and Michael operating as the CFO and the CEO COO uh, respectively. Um, and your long term partner Lori is also involved with your business too. So what's that like to share your success with your loved ones and? What are, what are some of the highs and lows with having your family so closely involved? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I never expected that um, that the boys would be involved in the business. I have to point out at this point in time, I have a daughter. She will say if she sees this, you never talked about me, Dad. So let's make sure we mention Melissa because she's successful in her own right and uh, yeah. and uh, a real sweetheart. But yeah, I'm lucky because I, I never I never preordained or predetermined that Philip and Michael would be in the business. But having Philip and Michael, I mean, I work with my boys every day. 
Philip's my CFO. He was in public accounting with uh, one of the big, big six, and uh, but he was an entrepreneurial accountant, and he wanted to he wanted to get out of that public practice uh, and uh, and join the firm. So he came in and slowly uh, took over from our retiring uh, controller, and he became the chief financial officer, and he runs all the finances for all, and he's smart. And he keeps his dad in check because I would go buy everything and I don't step on what he does because he knows what he's doing. And then my son, Michael, who has probably been described as a mini V, a, a kind of a carbon copy of me that just a wee bit shorter with red hair and a fiery personality. And he's uh, got, you know, he's uh, he's grad graduated and has got a degree in automotive mar- marketing from uh, Northwood University in Michigan. And so and he's well regarded in the industry as pretty much an expert in digital marketing, which, of course, you know, I wouldn't be. I admit it. And uh, so he is the COO. He's the chief operating officer for all of the businesses. And Philip's the CFO. And uh, so I get to see my boys every single day. We get to brainstorm the business. We work together on how we move the company forward. And, you know, what are the what are the strategic imperatives that we need to grow what are some of the highs and lows of having your sons work with you? Like you get to look around when you're having such a big win and you say, I've got my family right near me, but then you have times where there's like some tense, tense things happening in your business that you typically wouldn't have to share with them. So how do you compartmentalize like a tense day in the office, but then show up at the family, the family barbecue later that night? Yeah, we don't have many tense days. I'll be honest with you. We, we have a very tight knit family. I mean, I, have I had have, have I had a few teaching moments for my boys? Sure, you know there's been a few moments, but those moments are very few and far between because when the kids were younger, when the boys were younger, they didn't know as much as they know now, and so they know a lot more now. So the experience that they're getting, their thoughts align almost perfectly with my thoughts. It's only because. Either I'm bringing them along or they're bringing me along, but we're very aligned now. Totally. So how do you make sure, like we're bringing it back to this ladder analogy, how do you make sure like with your experience that you allow them to to hit those rungs, those broken rungs that that could they allow them to falter a little bit so they can learn those key learnings? But you know on the other end that this is probably the right way to go. Yeah, they, they're empowered to run the business. I would say to you day to day, they're... They're running the business, like they run the business. Uh, do I have a hand in it? For sure, but I'm I'm busy doing a lot of other things in the industry. Um, as a, you know, I work on committees with the manufacturers. There's always a lot of, a lot of there's a lot of tension there now. I can tell you, but um, I let them do their job. But but to their credit, um, they they ask for advice. They'll walk into my office and say, "Hey, Dad, can we have a meeting? We got to ask you a question. Here's what we're thinking." So they'll come and validate their thinking with me. I can't ask for more than that. I mean, they're never they're never wildly off base anyway. They'll just come. Here's what we're thinking, and they come to me to validate it. And because they always say, you know what, Dad, it's still your business. I go, yeah, it is, but you know, you guys are running it, and I'm more and more comfortable with them. I, they just run it, and you know, I don't, I don't really, I don't, you know, to be honest with you, Miss, I don't really have to come to work every day. I mean, that I don't know what I would do if I didn't, but. I could probably work from home, but I absolutely love being around people. And the pandemic has caused us to be around people less. And we are meant to be social persons. Like we're meant to hang around the water cooler and go for a beer on Friday night with some of our pals and our employees and have 
social events within the the dealership and do barbecues at lunch, raising money for someone that's less less advantaged than we are. And uh, we're meant to do those things and we're meant to make each other feel better. And when we can't do that, I think we lose a little bit of a step. So coming to the office to me and shaking hands and saying hi and wearing a mask and doing all the things that we have to do, pretty important part of, of how we live our lives each and every day. Okay, let's park the conversation right there for a quick second. After chatting with Vaughn about the complexities of a family-owned business, I wanted to make sure we were really nailing what should be thought about in case you were thinking of either starting or transitioning your business into one that is family-owned. I reached out to Jane Button, who is Connexus's Regional Vice President of Small Business and Specialized Solutions, and asked her to break this down for us. Here's what she had to say. Well, thank you, Mason. You know, I could talk on this for 60 minutes. So in 60 seconds, I would highlight three main points. Number one, the why. What is the motivation for this family succession or the startup business? What decisions are best for the business? Is succession just expected by the parents or has it been assumed by the kids? Or is there real drive and passion for the business truly evident in those new potential family owners? And are there business skills and acumen present or is there potential for such growth? All these factors combine together to make sure that there's a fit between the family and the needs of the business. So this may seem like a real obvious fact, but it's not and often assumptions are made to the detriment of the business. Number two, the expectations and communicating all of these expectations, both to those inside and outside of the business. So what roles will the family play? Is this going to be a management function or an ownership scenario? And what is the vision or future intentions for those roles? And it's really important for the existing owners to be open to new ideas for those coming in. And set boundaries around family versus work. So that is all commingled now. So set expectations on when you talk about which. Third point would be the preparation. And here I would emphasize early, early, early. So focus on training and development that's going to be needed. Ensure that family uh, members learn all necessary parts of the business. They may jump in thinking they want the top job, but we all know that there's a lot of development needed in all parts of the business. And involve outside partners early. So seek the advice of your legal, accounting, banking advisors, etc. at the initial stages, really at the onset, and gather that advice throughout. So in summary, Mason, in my mind, businesses do not belong on silver platters. So it's important to structure the deal properly as you would any other business deal to ensure the success of the business. Thanks, Jane. That's some amazing context on what to keep in mind when determining if a family business structure is the right route for you. Plus, I love the line about no business belonging on a silver platter. All right, let's get back to our interview with Vaughn. I love how you are committed to con- to connecting with people. And let's talk about how you give back to Saskatchewan through not just generous financial contributions, but time initiatives as well. So like the the Remy Modern Art Gallery of Saskatchewan, the Merlis Belcher Place, and currently the Stars and Pegas- the Stars Pegasus Project. Yeah. So tell me why um, philanthropy and and working with people like you said less advantaged as 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 you is such a priority for you. So I you know I've always thought we need to leave this place a little better than we found it. You know, in some way, and and that can be a small thing. Um, and everybody has the opportunity to leave the place better than they found it, even if it's as simple as picking up a piece of garbage off the street. 
you can say to yourself, as Boy Scouts do a good deed to somebody every day, right? And so you you know everything you do, you can you know you can leave the place a little bit better. From my standpoint, you know you know we've we've had some success. What what can we attribute our success to? Well, we could look in the mirror and say it's all us. It's not reasonable. Or we can say it's a combination of you know our business practices, our business philosophy, and the community and communities supporting us in return. So they come in and buy cars, repair cars, do all the things that they do, support my business, and then we support them back. Made a big donation to Reme. I never thought I would ever make enough money to be able to make that kind of donation. I just blew my mind. As a matter of fact, when Doug Hodson from MLT approached me we we didn't really know each other at the time. And he approached me as a chair of the fundraising committee and he, he had that uncomfortable first fundraising meeting. And uh, he told me about the Remy Modern and, um, and he told me how much he wanted. I looked at him and I said, you know, a city without the arts is a city with no soul. And if you look at some of the famous Canadians that, that have come from Saskatchewan, let's just pick the most obvious one, Joni Mitchell, you can affect Every walk of life and every age of individual by supporting arts. Children that get to uh, you know, learn and play at the Reme through all of their programs, uh, you affect them. You, you establish a legacy. And the legacy that I want for, not for me, I don't, I don't want any kind of a legacy. I really don't. Because uh, it used to be called the Von Wyant Automotive Group. You know, my boy said, Dad, I think we should change it to Wyant Group. And at first I thought, well, what the hell's wrong with my name? But then I realized that they were right, that they were right. Because 30 years from now, you know, my name is irrelevant, but the family name's not. And we want, we want to build the community as a family, not as an individual person. So that, that donation was made from our family, not from me. But the story is interesting because when Doug left my office, you know, I think he asked me for $250,000, if I recall, which I thought, this guy's crazy. But then I thought about the art gallery and I thought about um, I thought about my concept of the soul of the city. And I called my family and my daughter, my two boys, and of course, Lori, and I, I ran it by them. I said, I think we need to do something significant here. I think this is the one that we can do something significant for. And, and every cause is important. Let me tell you that. But I said, I think this is one we, we need to get behind as a family. And I was proud of my boys because they were the ones, my family were the ones that said, I think we should give them a million bucks. It wasn't me. So that told me that they understood the importance of the community, the importance of the arts community, and the importance of the legacy. And I remember calling Doug, and or we had a meeting with Doug, and I said, you know what, Doug, we've decided to support it, uh, but I'm not sure we're going to give you exactly what you want. And he'll tell you the story. It was blown away. Because in fundraising, nobody ever gives you more than you want. They come and ask you for a million, hope they're going to get 250. And it worked in reverse this way. And it, it was a good, it was, it was good learning for me. It was good learning for our family. And it's caused us to start thinking really closely about, you know, where, where do we want to spend our money? Vaughn, I couldn't illustrate cooperative values better if I tried, but you're so right. Money invested in businesses with the right values always finds a way of being reinvested back in the community. And that's exactly what a credit union does, right? And what differentiates it from a bank. You have to have the belief too that, you know, you can't measure payback. When it, when you give money, when you donate money to Salvation Army or Food Bank or the multitude, the multitude 
of organizations that we've donated to over the years. You know, there there is a payback because people pay attention. I know there's a lot of people buy cars from me and they've said, you know what, I'll never buy a car from someone else because you've always supported the community. So maybe you could say that the money that we donate or the help that we give to the community, maybe that doesn't cost us any money at all. I don't know. You can't quantify it. You can't do the math. But at the end of the day, I believe there's a lot of truth behind that. Oh, that's so good, Vaughn. Let me repeat that line one more time. Maybe the money we give to the community doesn't cost us anything at all. Oh, that's so powerful. What's it like to donate a $1 million check? Lots of people dream of seeing that money over the course of a lifetime, but you get to give that to to fund and build soul into the community. What's that feel like? Well, it's pretty empowering. It's pretty awesome. And um, it would tell you that it would raise the level of the self-esteem of my family, of my organization. They would feel good about working for a family that is prepared to do that for the community. So it all comes back to your reputation. It all comes back to uh, raising the level of self-esteem with everybody you meet. So when I talk to young people about mentoring them in business, it's not about adding the numbers up. To hit. It's about self-esteem. It's about the critical principles that happen long before the money hits the till. And I, you know, and you have to have a lot of faith that that those principles and those those guiding those guiding principles are going to lead you where you want to be. You don't make money first. The last thing that happens is you make money. The last person that gets paid in my organization is me. I get paid last. But I also know that if you do all of those fundamental steps well, and you do them consistently, and you do them honestly, and you do them respectfully, I will get paid. Oh, I love that. So let's dive deeper into the Pegasus project, something that that you're you're investing your time um, and so much just generosity into right now. So um, it's it's with stars. So for those of you who don't know, the the Pegasus Project is a fundraising initiative that is helping Stars Air Ambulance fundraise for a new fleet of helicopters. So the Pegasus Project is taking a custom built, and I'm not a, I'm not a car person, so I might completely butcher this, but a 1968 Ford Mustang 427 Coupe. Was that right? Did I nail that? You did nail that. That was pretty good. Thank you. We're making a car, uh, we're and, making a car guy out of you now. Uh, so we donated that, or you donated that, and it is uh, touring across the province and featured in Vegas before it goes to the Barrett-Jackson auction in Scottsdale, Arizona in 2022, and it's being auctioned off. All proceeds are going to STARS. So tell me why stars is such a meaningful initiative and why the pigs yeah i gotta take you back just a little bit if we've got a few minutes i mean uh back in 2013 i was approached by uh uh by some people from industrial machine the you know uh their manager and they said they came to me and i didn't know them and they said we've got a 1956 f100 and we want to refurbish it and we need to get some advice as how we can raise money for the children's hospital and uh, they said, we thought we could, you know, paint it up, spiff it up, make it look really cool. And then we could tour it around the province in malls on Saturdays and sell raffle tickets. And I said, I don't know how much money you can sell and how much work you have to do to raise. And make, I said, but, it, you know, and I, and I said, if I get involved, that's not what we're doing. This is going to be a big deal if we do that. So. I got a hold of a guy that I knew who's now a good friend of mine, Wayne Halliburton, a, a well-known uh, business guy in town and uh, and a car nut. 
builds and builds cars like he's a hot rod guy. So we met and I said, I've got this idea. And these guys came to me and, you know, I think we can do better. And then we started to brainstorm Barrett Jackson because he, you know, we both went to the Barrett Jackson every year and he knew the guys down there a little bit and I did. And so this thing started to spawn into quite a project. We built the truck. Um, I won't go through all the, the gyrations. We got Ford Motor Company involved. Uh, we we got Gene Simmons from Kiss involved. Uh, Gene's wife, Shannon, uh, grew up in Saskatoon. Uh, she had a friend at the Dakota Dunes Casino we got a hold of. We connected the dots. Gene Simmons phones me one day coming back from Emma Lake. And my phone rang and he says, Juan, yep, this is Gene. I have no idea who Gene is. Gene who? I only know one Gene. And I'm not expecting a call from the leader of KISS. Like, mm-hmm. And I'm instantly starstruck. Like, I'm not usually short for words. I finally figured out who he was, and we had about a 30-minute conversation. He shared me his personal cell number, his personal email, on the threat of death that I didn't share it with anybody in the world. And we created a relationship with Gene. And Gene unveiled the car with us in Vegas with Shannon. Um, so exciting. And then... We flew him over to Scottsdale, got a motorcycle escort from the airport to the Bear Jackson, CBC, Global, you know, CTV were there, the local radio stations. And we sold it for half a million dollars to a guy that we had pre-sold it in case there wasn't any bidders, Gordy Broda from Prince Albert, a well-known road builder, entrepreneur, and just a great, great guy. Um, He bought it for half a million dollars and we donated a half a million dollars, 100% of it went to the children's hospital. and then. It was the longest three years of my life. We worked like dogs, learned along the way. And then, of course, about 18 months about eighteen months ago, I was approached by the group again. They said, hey, how would you feel about doing that again? The Humboldt bus tragedy was personal for so many people. And I remember where I was and what I did and how the day unfolded and how the weekend unfolded after the Humboldt bus crash. And I remember saying to Lori, I said, you know, something great has to happen out of something so bad. We just can't lose these kids. And we can't spend our time blaming people. We have to figure out what can we do to make this thing better. Um, and I said, we have a responsibility to be leaders here. And uh, and then, of course, Wayne phoned me up, Wayne Halliburton said, hey, how would you like to do another another vehicle? And I went, oh, God, another three years. But then the light went on. And Lori and I had toured STARS. We wanted to know more about it. And we thought about making a personal donation to STARS. And, and we were so impressed when we toured stars, such great people. And I said, you know what? I'll get involved as the money goes to stars. And everybody said, a unanimous, that's just an awesome idea. So we became personally involved with stars. We know that, uh, that we can build the car. We know that we can sell the car. We have a, we have a great, wonderful template from doing it before. We have Ford Motor Company involved, the SEMA show in Las Vegas involved. We have the Shen brothers, Rita Shen, uh, Luke and Braden Shen's mom. Um, she's a hockey mom extraordinaire. I know why these kids are so successful because she's a driven woman. And these kids are great. They are Stanley Cup champions, along with uh, Jaden Schwartz and uh, Tyler Bozak, both Southern Saskatchewan guys. Uh, they are ambassadors for the Pegasus Project. They're doing stuff for us. Um, And we needed another Gene Simmons. So we phoned up Kim Coates, Mm -hmm. Sons of Anarchy. He went to school with one of my best friends, Jeff McGill. And so he agreed. And he has become not only an advocate 
he's working his tail off with all of his Hollywood responsibilities. This has become personal for him too. And I can tell you that the car is built. It's complete. It was road tested just yesterday. It is awesome. Uh, we are going to have, you know, a, we have got a couple of buyers that uh, are going to uh, bid this thing up in uh, January of next year. The pandemic has helped us raise more money. We're probably over $2 million. Same 20 people got to donate money to build the car. And we are finding ways to raise money. The Connexus Credit Union stepped up with a major gift of $500,000. MNP, the chartered accountants, uh, people we deal with, they got their donation from about 50 grand. They loved the concept. But, you know, they're from small town Saskatchewan, and those helicopters land in farmer's fields. They land in every small town eight to 900 times a year, saving lives, uh, making things better. So there's not a small community that doesn't understand what STARS does for them. We've engaged every Ford dealer in Saskatchewan again, in every small community. There's about 33 of them. They're heavily involved in it. Um, and we're going to take the car on a roadshow in a specially designed trailer, and we're going to go to all of these communities where there's a Ford dealer, and we're going to we're going to raise money for Stars for Pegasus, and we're going to raise money for the local first responders, who um, are the unsung heroes of these small communities. They're volunteers in most cases, and they are they need the funding for equipment to save lives in things that happen, and hopefully we never see another Humboldt again. And, you know, I've met Caleb Dahlgren, the young man that was on the bus. I met him early because Ford Motor Company lent all the survivors a vehicle to drive while they got their 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 lives back in order. And I got a chance to meet him when he returned the vehicle and to said thank you to me. And I talked to him about, about the accident and what he remembered. And, of course, he's written this great book, Little Plug, Crossroads. Um, <laughs> it's the number one – I think it's, a, it's the number three selling book globally in the world right yeah. now. Number one selling book in Canada. Um, it's crazy. And he's donating 25% of his proceeds to Pegasus. So we have advocates. And anybody that's been touched by STARS, which is pretty much any community that you can think about, should understand that STARS is a, a lifeline for people that might not make it or certainly would be in a lot desperate straits. So I started by saying it's personal. And so when you think about Humboldt, if you don't get a little emotional about that, um, then I don't know what would get you emotional. Wow. Vaughn, you just gave a masterclass on sales right there because you just encapsulated so well why the emotion behind the Pegasus project as well as the value and how just so many people are working so hard to make a difference here in order to make so many positive impacts in people's lives. I'm from a small town and I my dad used to be a farmer and I know just how STARS makes it gives the ability and the peace of mind that at any moment you may need that helicopter. Thank you so much for, for everything that you do in order to make this a, a success for, for so many people, because this is a time intensive, a financially intensive fundraiser, Incre but, but it's incredibly rewarding. Incre it's incredible. Yeah. Rewarding. We just, we spend our time thinking about new and inventive ways that we can raise money without sending people to a, a golf tournament or a steak barbecue like and i'm asking people that i know that should take responsibility for their part of the community and most in some way a hockey family and so they understand yeah so last question yeah. before we jump into some speed round questions i heard you say once in an interview i have a hard time remembering how bad the winter was a few years ago because it doesn't serve me any value today 
I can't change a single thing I did yesterday, but I can learn from it. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and fix a mistake or do something differently, I feel like I might know the answer to this question, but what is something that you would do differently? You know, I don't think, I think that, that, the, that the mistakes you may make are, are, are it, that's key learning. I, I think you have mm-hmm. to make mistakes. I think you have to make mistakes because every single thing that you do in business or in your personal life is a, is a building block in some way. When I say things like, I don't remember what the winter was like last year because it doesn't serve me any value. I really mean that. Someone said it was a really cold winter last year. I'm going, I don't know. Beautiful day today. And when we were walking for our 75 hard at minus 54 at six in the morning, minus six in the morning, do I remember that? Yeah, but I remember it as a accomplishment. And I, I remember when my kids were living in Vancouver with their mom, um, they were very young, but I phoned them every single night and I asked them two questions before they went to bed. I said, I would say to them, what is, what is the one thing today that you remember that you love the best. And they'd have to remember something today. I wanted them to tell me something that if they were having a tough day at school or having a tough day in, with anything, they would remember one really positive thing and they'd tell me. And then I'd say to them, what are you looking forward to tomorrow? And I, you know, once in a while they'd say, hey mom, what are we doing tomorrow? Show and tell. Oh dad, I'm looking forward to show and tell. So I would send them to bed with two thoughts, both positive thoughts. So when you do that with children, they sleep better, they get out of bed with more energy because their subconscious is driving them to that one thing they're looking forward to the most the next day. If I regret anything, I wish I had known more about this when I was younger. Totally. All right. Before I let you go, I'm going to hit you with 10 speed round questions. You haven't seen these before. These are all going to be- I feel like I'm on Jimmy Fallon or something. I wish I was Jimmy Fallon. Okay. First one. So I know that you have two English Springer Spaniels named Abby and Jake. What's the best part about having dogs? The unconditional love you get from those dogs. They, they are the epitome of uh, trust. They rely on us for everything. And um, we only rely on them for one thing. And that's, you know, the love and the, you know, just the excitement and the, and the humor we get out of them. They're crazy. They're just, they're like little people. I swear to God, they talk and we just, we laugh our, we laugh our, frankly, we laugh our asses off at them. They make us feel better every day. I just, we just love them. Just love them. Um, the last TV show you binged and loved? Uh, Fleabag was awesome. Fleabag was so offside. Uh, but both, I mean, Lori and I started watching it because then we said, you should watch Fleabag. So we started watching it about halfway through the first episode. And Lori and I looked at each other. He goes, I don't know about this. I says, you know what? Let's just give it another episode. And then from there on, it was like nonstop. It was, it was just brilliant. And there's a lot of brilliant shows, but that's the latest. What's so special about mini weeks and yogurt? Uh, well, we, uh, 75 hearts changed, you know, how I start my day. I used to get out of bed at 7.15, rush to the office by eight, no breakfast, you know, something along the way at Starbucks or something. So now we get up at six, we're on the road by 6.15, we walk for one hour, we're back at 7.15, the coffee's been pre-made, because I do the coffee and make the bed, by the way, every day. And we set up the mini wheats, and the and the springers are waiting for mini wheats, they're creatures of habit, and as we eat our mini wheats, they get a few mini wheats along the way, and they're just, it's just part of their day, and it's, again, it makes us laugh, it's a great way to start the day. And yogurt, yogurt we end up every day with yogurt and berries in bed, with the dogs and they get to clean up the yogurt. So they, it's just funny. Like, like nothing happens until we have our mini wheats and we have our yogurt at night. Love that. 
Those dogs are living in luxury. Are, if I, I swear to God, if it was a choice, if Lori had a choice between the dogs and me, I'm gone. The dogs survive. And I, you know, I would like to come back in another life if if that exists. I'd like to come back as one of Lori's dogs because they get so well. So good. That's awesome. Um, so every every interview or picture, and actually the first thing I, I ever noticed about you was your glasses. Oh, yeah. And it seems like you have you have a new pair for every every interview or every <laughs> picture I see you yeah. in. How many pairs of eyeglasses do you own? I don't know, a lot. I, I, I've never added them up because it's probably embarrassing. But the reason it evolved is, you know, I mean, I can see for miles. These are, these are, you know, I'm I'm farsighted, which means, you know, I need a little help reading. Although, to be honest with you, I can probably read with bright light and no glasses. But I thought, I don't want to be one of those guys that's always doing this, glasses off, glasses on, glasses off, glasses on. I didn't want to be the guy that went to the, to the, uh, to the drugstore and bought the, uh, dollar 99 readers you know i said if i'm gonna wear glasses i want it to be a fashion statement i want it to be part of what people talk about when they talk about me like and people i go on trips and i take people go guy my colleagues go so how many glasses do you bring this trip i said i don't know four five or six i'm a little obsessive no i am obsessive i i i didn't realize this till recently that i'm actually quite obsessive like i'll go i don't have a pair of orange glasses and so when i see a pair of orange glasses i go i'll buy a pair of orange I don't know. I just think it's a it's part of a fashion or a style statement, and yeah. and, and it uh, it does draw attention to me, um, but it's it's never negative attention. Um, next question: What's your desert island album? Well, I am a Beatles fan, so you know probably the White Album, the Beatles White Album, mm. maybe maybe one of the most iconic uh, records ever ever produced. But there's so many great bands and so many great songs. But a lot of that all started with the Beatles. What is there a Beatles song that always resonates with you? Like, do you have a number one song? Imagine by John Lennon was voted the most important song in uh, pop and rock and roll history. And it's hard to argue when you listen to the song because the meaning of the song is uh, relevant today and always will be relevant. All of their music is so transcendent. Yeah, like it is. when my dad passed away, like uh, with a little help from my friends, I listened to it on on repeat and you it's so weird to think like this was written decades ago i know i love the music of the 60s 70s and 80s i think you know in the 90s i mean frankly for me it's more like music but i understand everybody has different musical tastes and i respect them all i went to a post malone concert with laurie in toronto uh <laughs> late in uh, in early 20 before before the pandemic hit we went to a post malone concert and i said you know what i want to see what it's all about hugely talented individual and I'm probably with a little bit of help, I could get more into the music. But, you know, it'll never be the Beatles to me. I remember the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And I had my mom, that was the only time my mom let us stay up for the Ed Sullivan show because we had to go to bed after Bonanza. But she let us stay up for that show because the English boys were on their plan. I remember it. Oh, second last question. You kind of alluded to it. Who's the better golfer, you or Kim Coates? Oh, yeah. Well, we have a healthy competition. And, uh, you know, the pandemic, you know, I haven't played any golf in the pandemic, but I've watched a lot of golf and you can learn more about golf by watching than playing. So I played a couple of times last week in Kelowna and I played really well because my mind was being trained really, truly. You watch the professional, you watch the professional swing and you start, you start to understand it because you spend more time watching than playing. So uh, I'm going to go on a limb and saying the next time Kim and I play and we have a bet, I'm winning that one. There's no doubt about it. And I can get in his head so easily. 
he's, you know, he doesn't have the mental toughness that I have for golf. He just doesn't. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, last question. What connects us? Yeah, I think, I think it's just respect for, for, you know, for everybody, regardless of your, of your race, regardless of your religion. Uh, you know, you know, I think, you know, I've, you know, I, I would, I would say that, you know, everybody carries bias. A bias is not the same as racism. We all have bias. I'm biased toward a latte over a black coffee. We're biased. You know, we carry bias and we have to be careful that whatever bias that we carry doesn't, doesn't translate into our behavior toward other human beings. I just think that, you know, as a, as an industry leader, as a community leader, the example I set is important to people that respect me. If I set a bad example, then I'm I'm allowing other people to do the same thing. And I think we have to be careful that that our words, our tone of voice, and our body language are so important when we're dealing with everybody. And I think that it's so much easier, takes so much less energy to be kind. It must take an incredible amount of energy to be mean-spirited or to be nasty to somebody. So I think everything starts with a kind word because I think that kind word makes that other person's day better. But I think that it does something emotionally inside you to make your day better. I love that answer so much. I, I was hit with an epiphany the other day being like, we all have the power to make somebody's day just with our words. But we, we choose to hoard it sometimes. Just kindness and the ability to, especially more than ever, just to make somebody's day right now, because you have no idea the power that just a phone call to say, hey, I'm thinking about you, or just a compliment, love your glasses, things like that, what that could turn around in somebody's Yeah, day. and you know, in the pandemic, a lot of people have just been phoning people they haven't connected with for years to say, how are you doing? Send them an email, just thinking about you, how are you doing? And they go, wow, that's pretty cool. And I think people generally, and I said this at the beginning, I just feel people are being kinder to people. People are starting to be more understanding that the pandemic is causing anxiety. It's causing incredible stress in families. Uh, we have a lot of, you know, uh, mental health issues that are that are more prevalent now because of the anxiety that that, you know, quite rightfully, the pandemic has caused people. So I can't think of a better time to be kinder to people. And in your own way, you're helping them through maybe a tough day or a tough week or a tough month or a tough pandemic. So like, just be kind. And that's, I guess at the end of the day, that's the overriding mantra of the Pegasus Project is we're just being kinder to people that are making a difference to so many lives of the people that live in Saskatchewan. Vaughn, thank you so much for taking some time today. I've, your you're so rooted in your community values and your family values. And the entire time you're speaking, I'm sitting here thinking this man doesn't have an egotistical bone in his body. You, you do such a great job of leading from humility and it's electric and it's contagious as you're, as you're speaking, I'm feeling just so inspired to do good and to do good for people. And that doesn't necessarily mean giving a million dollar check. That just means making somebody's day. Yeah. That's what um, it's about for sure. Absolutely. So thank you so much. Uh, this has been a great interview and uh, I'm, I'm leaving a better person because oh, of well, I hope so. It's been fun. I like it. You know what? It's uh, it's, it's a good way for me to spend my time. If, 
people listen to the podcast and they get something out of it and uh, it improves, you know, the way they look at other people or talk to other people or maybe how they view themselves, then I would say mission has been accomplished. Well, that's it for our chat with Vaughn and this episode of season three of the What Connects Us podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with a podcast on every second Wednesday. And if you like the podcast, please do us a favor and hit that subscribe or follow button. We'll see you in two weeks. Until then, I'm off to grab some mini wheats. <laughs>